Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Hello. Uh, welcome. Very nice to have you with us. Uh, for those of you here for the first time, my name's Ed, and along with Hannah, I lead this church. Um, thank you for your patience with the new room. We are in the process of trying to get a projector. It's such a shame not to use that massive screen uh, so that everyone at the back can see. Um, and hopefully that will be in place by next week so you can see stuff above my head rather than having to peer around at the small screens. Anyway, um, welcome. We are continuing our series on uh, Jesus with people uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Last week, if you were here, Hannah kicked us off with um, Jesus with Gentiles. This week, I'm speaking about Jesus with women. that I am, in fact, not actually a woman. Uh, Which may have also raised in your mind the question, why am I, a man, taking it upon myself to talk about women? This is a very good question. And don't worry, it's one I've been asking myself all week. Uh, In fact, Hannah, a while ago, gave me a book which was called How to Be a Woman. It's a very good book. And the more I read it, the more I realized I really do not know how to be a woman. So, it's fair to say that I am underqualified to talk about women. But I am not, I don't think, underqualified to talk about theology and the Bible. And so even if I, as someone who identifies as a man, will never fully be able to know what it's like to be a woman, I think there is something to be said and something actually quite powerful for um, a man advocating and promoting the cause of women uh, from the Bible in the same way that a woman doing something similar for men is also very powerful. So I hope you'll bear with me. I grew up in a male-dominated world. Uh, It's this world. Uh, (laughs) I have no sisters. I went to a boys-only boarding school from the age of 13. We wore capes, don't worry about that. Uh, We really did. Uh, My world was very much uh, dominated by men. However, my mum is um, a strong and powerful woman. She's set up and run various organizations. She still speaks regularly at churches in her 70s now. Uh, She raised me and my brother pretty much single-handedly. She was and is a very gifted and natural leader and mother and speaker. I am now married And I am in a family of five girls. I have three daughters. No, I don't. Five girls. Oh, no, sorry. (laughs) I should just read the script. Uh, Or at least know anything about my own life. Um, My wife is one of five girls, and I married into that. So there's lots of girls there, and I have three daughters. I don't have a family of five. Well, kind of. Anyway. Uh, There are a lot lot more women in my life than there once were. Um, We do have two biologically male dogs, uh, but at least one of them, I think, if if they could, would identify as a girl. Uh, So 
I'm pretty sure that, all joking aside, I know I now have a lot more interest in what God thinks of uh, women than I might have once done. It is vested in me. But whilst I am going to talk a lot about it, the subject of biological sex and gender identification won't actually be ultimately what I want to focus on. Because whilst these issues are obviously very important, they are, I believe, not as important, not nearly as important to God as issues of personhood, who he made you to be as a unique individual person. It's far more important to him than your biology or which, which gender you identify with, or indeed what culture has or has not told us about what these things should mean. So that's where we're going to be heading this morning. But to start, let us look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke, uh, who also wrote Acts, um, and in fact, Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts are really just two volumes of one book. We should probably read them um, one after the other. Luke is the writer beyond every other writer in the New Testament um, who emphasizes the importance, the role in salvation of women. In fact, they are so frequent, his um, references to women, that there have been some who have suggested that actually maybe Luke wasn't Luke at all, that Luke was actually a woman, and that he was, it was later kind of um, uh, called Luke uh, because that added credibility to it. Now, this is almost certainly not the case, just so you know, but it does give you an idea of quite how femininely focused the, the text of Luke Acts is. So, here is one famous passage, in particular from Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to, give, to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So throughout Luke, he has these different parallels where he sets up two different people, quite often a male and a female, sometimes two females, to make his point. And here is a Lucan parallel. On the one hand, we have Simon the Pharisee. On the other hand, we have this unnamed woman anointing Jesus with perfume. So the Pharisee had invited Jesus to dinner, um, presumably, I think, to sound him out, to find out a little bit more about him, because he's clearly not totally convinced about Jesus. He questions whether he's a prophet. And actually, Jesus proves that he's a prophet by knowing that he's questioning he's a prophet and tells him exactly what he's thinking straight away. Nice one, Jesus. But what is going on here? Given that he's a Pharisee, Almost certainly, he would have done the ceremonial washing. They needed to be clean. It was quite customary, if there was a big dinner party, for people from the street to come and maybe sit on the outskirts of the court and have a look in. And this is probably what the woman was doing. What wasn't normal was for the woman or for anyone to then get up and join the guests. But what Jesus is referencing, the kiss, the water for his feet, the oil for his head, is above and beyond what is obligatory and ceremonial and necessary. They are the generous offerings that spill over from a heart that has met the living God, a heart that understands generosity and grace and goodness and the love of Jesus. They cannot help themselves, and this is always what Jesus is looking for in any of us. The spilling over. How's that? Yes. Round of applause for Michaela. Thank you. <laughs> what the woman is showing Jesus is faith and love. She has it in spades. It's spilling over. The Pharisee is notably lacking in all of it. It all sounds a little bit, actually, like the Pharisee thinks he's doing Jesus a bit of a favor, inviting him round. But Jesus... Notice, he's only really interested in one person. Now, we're told that the woman has a, uh, leads a sinful life. Unfortunately, it is very much um, reductive what often has been read into that to say, therefore, that she's a sex worker or she's an adulteress or whatever. It's just not there in the text. But people have often done that um, because uh, they're a bit misogynistic. Uh, but what is for sure is that she would given that she is um, spoken of as a sinful person who leads a sinful lifestyle. She would have been belittled, she would have been despised, she would have been uh, demonized even by this patriarchal religious culture of the time. 
there is a traditional daily prayer in the Talmud, uh, which um, good Jewish uh, boys of the time, devout Orthodox Jews, would say every morning. And it goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord, O God, ruler of the universe, for not creating me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. It's often hard for us to understand just how relegated she would have been in this context. Her mere presence, let alone what she does, is bringing shame on the host. It's embarrassing the guest. It is, in the minds of the pharisaical class, dishonoring God. This is as bad as it gets, really. She is walking into a hornet's nest, and she would know that full well, but she cannot help herself. And then she lets her hair down. Now, this is a highly inappropriate thing to do. There is an element of um, sexualization to, to it in general um, uh, culture of the time. It's a bit like uh, turning up topless. Now, there is no sense of sexualization here in this text, but that's how um, sort of offensive it would be to those who were there. But she isn't trying to offend anyone. She's just totally abandoned in her desire to show love to her savior. And there's no hint of sexualization from her offer, nor in the receipt or response from Jesus. Rather, Jesus sees it all for exactly what it actually is, pure, thankful, unadulterated love, and he calls it out. And for him, there is absolutely no problem with her gender. The only problem he has is with the Pharisees' judgment. In fact, there's a little kind of um, ironic, you have judged well, he says to Simon, when Simon gives the right answer to his little parable. You've judged well then, but you have been judging badly everywhere else. And notice that this audacious act of generosity in other versions of the story, it's, um, the perfume is said to be pure nard, which would be worth about a year's worth um, of salary. I don't know what the average is, $40,000, $50,000 worth of um, uh, perfume being poured out. What she's not doing, though, is an act of penance. She's not trying to be forgiven. Rather, she already knows that she is. She's clearly known all about Jesus. She's followed him. She's heard where he's going. She's heard his teaching. She's seen his miracles. She's heard his offer of forgiveness. And she knows that despite everything, she is. And she now wants to respond. God's forgiveness always precedes anything that we ever do. On the cross, Jesus forgives it all. Past, present, future. You, everyone you know, all of history done on the cross. Ours is just to respond to it. That's our job. And this is what she's doing. She's responding. As Jesus says, I tell you, verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. It's worship what she's doing. And this would have been, of course, extremely offensive utterly revolutionary in the context. And yet there it is in black and white, with no apology in the New Testament. And let me tell you, it's not the only one. 
there are countless references of similar sort of revolutionary radical form as this one throughout the New Testament. Luke 8 states that alongside some women who had been demonized and sick, various influential and rich women were in the core group who traveled with Jesus from town to town, and that these women actually supported him with money so that he could do his thing. God chose women whose testimony had no legal weight at the time as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Women. Now, Josephus, who was a first-century historian, says this about women's testimony. From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and the temerity of their sex. Levity means giggliness. Temerity means cheek. Silly little giggly, cheeky women. You can't trust them with anything, and therefore we shouldn't listen to anything they have to say in a court of law. But God trusts them so much that he chooses women as the first witnesses of the most important moment in all of history. In Acts, we read that Priscilla, a woman, is named before her husband, Aquila, which was almost never done in um, antiquity, and it bestowed on her the primary authority in that relationship. But not only that, Priscilla, a woman, also teaches and corrects Apollos, a man. And Apollos is an evangelist church leader man at that Centuries later, in more progressive Jewish texts, women did start teaching Jewish men, but only from behind a curtain, so that they couldn't be seen and that therefore no man could be offended by the person who might have been teaching them, and perhaps they put on a deep voice. But Priscilla, a woman, teaches Apollos a man. Women associate with Paul, with him they share the gospel, which surely must mean that, you know, they actually preach the gospel. Women assist in the leadership of various churches through the clearly defined roles of widow and deacon. And indeed, the New Testament does not see any need to coin a new female version of the word deacon like deaconess. Actually, rather, to be a deacon is to be a deacon irrespective of gender. And as you may know, women pray and they prophesy in church and Paul encourages it which surely must mean, if they pray and prophesy in church, that they are not silent in church and that they are, in fact, speaking in church because they are praying and prophesying in church. Paul sees prophecy as the greatest of all spiritual gifts. Let's remember. This is all in a serious time of patriarchy. I am not being hyperbolic to say that the treatment of women throughout the New Testament is actually revolutionary. In the well-known story of Mary and Martha... Jesus goes to their house, Martha does some kitchen work as she's supposed to in the back, but Mary sits at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. Now the most striking thing about that whole episode is that in sitting at Jesus' feet, Mary is behaving just like a rabbi's pupil would, sitting at his feet and learning. But adult women would never, ever have had that relationship with a rabbi. If they ever studied the Jewish law, and many didn't, it would have been in the most basic forms, and it would have ended by the age they were about eight, and it would have taught them purely just how to keep a kosher household. And yet, Jesus commends Mary and her, just like a man sitting at the rabbi's feet, in the most positive ways. Her story is recorded for all of time as one of the most emphatically Jesus-endorsed pictures of discipleship throughout the whole Gospels. This is revolutionary. And of course, Paul famously states in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there female or male, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. A theological statement which trumps all other situational ethics that you might read about. Utterly revolutionary. In general terms, the depiction of women in the New Testament is... Radical. 
It's no surprise, therefore, is it, that women flocked to Christianity in its infancy. It's not by accident that Christianity began, as uh, Nietzsche put it, the religion of slaves and women. Now, he thinks that's a criticism. It's not. It's a compliment. Because in Christianity, weakness, and you don't get much less powerful than slaves and women at the time, is not just the entry point into the kingdom of God. It's not just the way in. It's also the way on. Because the weak are the ones who are going to be made strong. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Blessed, not because they are weak and powerless and downtrodden, but because Jesus says, I'm coming. And I am turning the whole world upside down for these people. No longer will they be downtrodden, because I'm coming to lift them up. My power, says the Lord, is made perfect in weakness. It's revolutionary. So... How does all the revolutionary stuff fit with the not-quite-so-revolutionary stuff? I haven't got time to go through all of this. You can read lots of good books, but let's just go for a real beauty. 1 Timothy 2. A woman, this is verse 11, should learn... No, it's not. Yes, it is. It is verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission, says Paul. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. Now, this has to be understood in the light of Paul being very happy, as I've just said, for women to speak in his other churches. It bears noting also that he is addressing Timothy as opposed to a church. So it's likely that Timothy has raised a particular issue about his particular congregation in Ephesus, and Paul is giving his private advice. We we can only kind of um, uh, postulate what's going on here, but it's probably the case as similar uh, to the case in Corinth, that there have been disturbances going on in worship. And Paul doesn't like those. He wants, them to be, um, he wants worship to be nice and orderly. Um, most likely, women who would not necessarily have been educated at the time were asking questions during uh, the service, and then they were t- teaching each other and not getting it right, mainly just because they weren't educated in the same way. And from verse 8 of this passage, we can see that the men have been getting angry and disruptive. All this chattering. Stop it. And so, Paul wants to put a stop to it, and most likely, he says to Timothy, well, just tell them to be quiet. And then it's done. However, as I said earlier, and various people um, with brains much bigger than me would agree with this, the overriding issue has got to be the theological um, uh, kind of all-encompassing statements such as Galatians 3 rather than the situational ethics of a particular church. And I think that makes most sense of the whole of the New Testament. The other point is that idealism for Paul, is, I think, not high up on his priority list. He is, in fact, the arch-pragmatist, and he is the arch-evangelist. He is, after all, the one who becomes all things to all people in order to win a few. So for Paul, the important thing always remains, how on earth can I find the most people to give, have, the, have the best chance of hearing and responding to the gospel? And so, on the one hand, he will insist that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish 
and get circumcised when they become Christians, for obvious reasons, making Christianity infinitely more attractive to your average foreskin-wielding Greek or Roman, and thereby taking the neither Jew nor Greek part to its logical conclusion. Whilst, on the other hand, he stops short of calling for the abolition of slavery. He does, of course, and this with a huge sort of counter-cultural um, force to it, instruct masters to treat their slaves in the same way as he's instructed slaves to treat their masters, i.e. with sincerity, respect, service, wholeheartedness, and goodness. But presumably, he doesn't push the abolition of slavery envelope all the way for fear that the cross of Jesus will become submerged under the distracting political and social unrest. Now, whether we think that that was the right call with our 21st century Christian 2020 hindsight and all of the mess that has come as a result of that is an important question, but it's not really the issue. It is what I think is most likely going on in the mind of Paul, though. And I think it's a similar case when it comes to women. There is less evidence for female apostles. There's no evidence of co-equal leadership. Not because Paul doesn't believe in those things, I don't think. I think it's quite clear that he does absolutely believe in those things. But pushing them to the forefront would have such an effect on both the movement and the culture as a potentially distracting thing that a lot of people would then ne not necessarily receive the most powerful thing, necessarily the gospel. We can presume that what Christianity has already established in terms of women's roles and status was so monumentally radical that to extend it any further risked creating issues which again would distract potential converts from the power of the cross. And as always, for Paul, it comes down to this. What in this particular culture is the most pragmatic way of spreading the gospel? But his culture is not ours. So where does that leave us now? I think, and I may have lost count, but we may either be in the fourth or fifth wave of feminism. There's been quite a few. And indeed, um, feminism's definitely sort of been on a resurgence recently. But I think feminism is still a pretty dirty word, not least a dirty word in some parts of the church. And I think it's a dirty word in some parts of the church because so often for some people it is associated with men hatred and marriage hatred and having children hatred and even sometimes bra hatred. And for Christians, that seems at odds with our faith. Jesus clearly thought that men, marriage, and children were all quite good things. It's not stated his position on bras. Oh, come on. That was my best joke. <laughs> now, of course, there's extremism in any ideology. And feminism has, like any other, its fair share of extremists. But leaving aside the genuinely distorted end of the spectrum, if feminism is simply the idea that men and women should be treated equally because, you know, they are equal, and this, by the way, is what every single feminist I know would say feminism is, then all of a sudden it becomes very much in line with Christianity, doesn't it? Labels aren't always very helpful, but if feminism means equality and equality is Christian, by this definition, then feminism is Christian and Jesus was a feminist. Woohoo! But the reality of our culture is still this. Only one in four members of Congress is a woman. And I know it's more complicated than this, so forgive this slightly sweeping statement. But nevertheless, the raw data is that women earn 83 cents on the dollar compared to men. 
and less than 9% of Fortune 500 companies have, ma uh, have female CEOs. And this, despite that there's been a huge amount of research into FTSE leading companies that say that if you have any females on your board, any at all, you are more likely to be something like 10 times more productive than those companies that have no females on their board. So why is the world like this? Now, anthropologists spend their lifetime researching why women have been treated like this across culture and across time, and I can't pretend to know all the arguments. But one thing strikes me as universally true, and please um, just hear this. Um, hear this with sympathy. Men in general are physically stronger than women, simply by dint of having more testosterone flowing through their bodies. There are also times when um, women are more vulnerable in childbirth and in early motherhood. Now, of course, men do have uh, man flu, the severity of which no woman will ever know. Um, but I think it's, there are certain implications that come from this reality. There will be an impact on your psyche, on your emotions, on your self-understanding of those who are physically stronger than others that more men have more of a capacity to get what they want and get others to do what they want by force, whilst more women do not. It's therefore easier and it feels more natural for men to attain to positions of power. Now, I'm definitely not saying this is right, I just think it's obvious. But equally, history has demonstrated again and again that many women have risen to ultimate leadership positions, proving, therefore, that there is nothing inherent in being a woman that excludes you from being an ultimate leader. So we shouldn't be surprised by that either. I'm just trying to judge the room at the moment. I'm pretty sure this isn't going to work. Um, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know her? Yeah. Whatever you think about her, is she not a leader? AOC, whatever you think about her, is she not a leader? Does it not prove that women can lead? I mean, honestly, I can't believe we're still having this conversation. Surely, Margaret Thatcher, who ran our country for a long time, in a bad way, in my opinion, very bad way, she was a leader. So we shouldn't be surprised by that either. However, as Christians... Don't we want to throw in something altogether different? We want to say that this distortion at the heart of things, this distortion where men have lorded it over women from the beginning because of their power, as God predicts will happen right at the beginning of Genesis, we want to say, though, that this distortion of things, which has influenced the relationship between the sexes in every single culture, has been decisively corrected by Jesus of Nazareth. We are never going to fully evade the effects of this distortion this side of eternity, but we do aim to realize Jesus' vision for the sexes, and we're not limited by what any society may think is normal or what any physicality might imply. In New Testament times, women were almost entirely without rights, roles, or respects. But Jesus and the power of the Spirit began a revolution. 
Paul, I want to argue, took that revolution on. And so we should be at the forefront of gender equality because we actually believe in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, or male or female. We believe in the kingdom of God, don't we? So both personally and corporately, and I'm asking us all to do this now, I think we have to reevaluate our beliefs, our attitudes, our behavior, our action when it comes to gender. Good. Glad we had this little talk. Now, having said all that, in my opinion, the critical issue in Christ is not one of masculinity or femininity. There is, after all, neither male nor female. But it's of personhood. Which is why I don't really believe in complementarianism, that men are like this and women are like this. I know that there are a whole glut of Christian books which say exactly that sort of thing, and as far as I can tell, men are supposed to be building forts and cutting down trees, and women are wearing blouses, or something like that, doing crochet. I, um, no, I won't do that. The story of the Bible, as far as I can see it, is that God says to you, I permit, not that he says, sorry, the story of the Bible as I see it, is God saying not, I primarily made you as a man or a woman, but I primarily made you as you. And our job is to grow up into who he has made us, a unique individual. Now, some men are made to build forts and cut down trees, but some men like painting and making clothes. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> They're never going to fire a gun. Some women are extremely gentle and emotionally intuitive people. Others are loud, ballsy leaders, and that's fine. Do not be threatened. Each one of us, man or woman, however we identify, whatever gender we identify as, has a responsibility to become the person you were created to be, to become more godly Ed, to become more godly Hannah or Jonathan or anyone else. Insert your name here. That's your job. So the first question for any Christian person is, what are my gifts? That should be your first question. What are my gifts? Or how can I serve? And the reality is, in church, as always, the church has gone to two extremes when it comes to service. On the one hand, there's the more sort of um, beat-yourself-up church, where to be, you've got to deny all your gifts, all your talents, all your personality, and probably just put out the chairs over and over again. And that's real, you know, if you're a real leader, that's what you do, right? Now, I'm not saying please put out the chairs, it's great. Uh, but you're supposed to deny yourself. And then on the other end of the extreme, it's all about your gifting, and it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life if you embezzle money and fly in private jets and do whatever because you're the gifted one and you've got to do it. And character means nothing. Both extremes have some truth to them. Both of them are not quite right. To be completely clear, in Christianity, leadership is service, and service is leadership. So what you need to do, whether you're a man, woman, however you identify, you find your gifts and ask, how can I serve with them? There is no point in me playing the piano. It would be so bad. I mean, it wouldn't. 
I like to think that even though I can't play the piano, I could probably get away with it. Uh, but that's just me. Um, but isn't it wonderful seeing musicians using their gifts to serve us, who are talented, who are gifted, who are giving it back to the Lord? I, um, I don't want to embarrass anyone. But Stan, I'm going to embarrass you, Stan is a wonderful, wonderful, mature Christian. He's seen it all and done it all. And yet he's here helping with the cars, parking. Because he loves Jesus. That's the reason, isn't it, Stan? Because he loves Jesus. Be like Stan. Do not hide your gifts under a bushel. Do not deny your gifts, but use them for the church. And it does not matter one tiny little bit, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever you identify as, just use them. And it doesn't matter if the person we are serving is a man or woman or whatever gender they identify as, just serve them. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom of God. Remember, ultimately, God likes his kingdom. And God loves people who want to build his kingdom. I really don't think... I was having this conversation with um, our spiritual advisor the other day. And he was just talking about... We were talking about various different churches and the progressive wing of the church and the evangelical wing of the church and the conservative wing of the church. And he just said, I really don't think the Holy Spirit cares that much. He's just interested in people who want to build his kingdom. And Paul says something very similar. He says, I don't care what motives people preach the gospel under. I don't care whether it's entirely selfish. I just want people to meet Jesus. This should be our general take. The Holy Spirit will iron it all out. If we are open to him, he will sort out our wrong beliefs. He will sort out our wrong practices. We just need to be open. So, what we want to pray for is with people, as Tavia was saying earlier, to be set free to be the people that they were created to be, however you identify. And to use what God has given you, however big or small you may think it is, for his glory and for his kingdom. Because then the world is set on fire. Then the world is made as it was supposed to be, returned to what it was always supposed to be, where everyone has a place, and there is no division. No slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, all one. Which doesn't mean we lose any individuality. In fact, our individuality comes to the fore. Good. I'll do. Should we stand? <laughs>